August and September are really uh, big months for the Abbey home. All right. Um, we have birthdays and anniversaries. So at the end of August, August 25th was my birthday. Something for you to remember. You'll have no excuse not to forget it next year. So August 25th was my birthday. And I turned, anybody want to guess how old I turned? 23. What'd you just say? Okay. You, you guys are done. All right. 38. All right. 38. Do I look it? Yeah, I do. Don't, don't look. Thank you, truth. Absolutely, I do. All right, 38. Um, so that was August 25th. This past Tuesday was Suzanne's birthday. That's right. And she turned 29 again. So we're really excited about that. We just keep those numbers and candles around. Um, and then tomorrow, Suzanne and I celebrate 13 years of marriage. God bless that woman. Um, so we celebrate a lot in August and September. It's a really fun time. But the reality is, like, they're kind of like different celebrations. Because there's, like, celebration of anniversary and there's celebration of birthdays. And, you know, I know it can sound kind of cheesy, but we, we switched saying that Christ City turns seven, that it's its seventh anniversary earlier this year, um, and instead we're saying it's its seventh birthday. And I know that can sound cheesy, but I want you to think about this. You see, anniversaries are things that people make. They're man-made, they're woman-made. They're things when two people come together, they say, forever we'll do this together, from here on out. And every year then after that, you recognize how you stick together, how you've made this happen. It's a celebration of what you've done. But nobody tells a child, hey, good job on being born, right? You don't, you don't tell somebody like, hey, good job for being born and being 40 years old or 38 years old, because the celebration is different. You're celebrating life that actually was a miracle. You're celebrating something that wasn't man-made, but something that was God-made. And it's really important that we distinguish ourselves as that as a church. That we are a group of people that did not come up with a good idea seven years ago, and then we decided to do it, and therefore we give each other a high five or pound the back. We're a people who are brought together in the providence and sovereignty and beauty and desire of God. And that is something to be glad about. So here's what I want to do. I realize a lot of you may not know the story of Christ City Church. And I just thought, you know, when it's birthday time, sometimes it's good to put the kid on the knee and say, and here's how your mother and I decided on this. No, but like, <laughs> sometimes it's good just to recognize like where this church came from, how it started. And there's a lot of you that may not even know this story that have been around for a long time. In 2008, in January of 2008, um, I concocted a plan to bring together uh, three of my closest friends who were very different from one another um, and to say, what if we all decided to push all of our chips in the middle of the table and go start a church in Memphis, Tennessee? Um, one of them was living in Ohio and Cincinnati, another in St. Louis, and another here in Memphis. And so we all gathered together in Memphis. And I've always loved bringing my friends together. Um, they haven't always gotten along, but I want to try to force it to make it happen. Anybody know what I mean, right? Like, you need to like each other, get over it, this, you know, that kind of thing. And so we all got together, and for about a day and a half, we walked all over the city and drove all over the city, 
Suzanne and I were already thinking about moving to Memphis at that point in time. We always loved the Cooper Young area. And so I got them together. And after about 30 email exchanges of, you know, poking fun at each other and, and sharing our philosophies of ministry, we got together and talked through it and realized something. We could not plant a church together. All right? And that's because, like, everybody's ego was huge, all right? I mean, you ever heard about, like, too many chefs in the kitchen? You know what I mean? And so that's what happened. We all got together and realized that we didn't like each other and we didn't want to plant a church together. So that was the beginning, though, of something. Because one of my friends, Jonathan, who was living in St. Louis, something started up in him. And he and I just kept talking about this idea of one day planting a church. And so at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, he came to me and said, I want to start that church, and I want us to do it in Memphis. So let's start drawing up the plans. Now, he was at the end of his time in St. Louis. I was at the end of my time down in Tupelo. And so we started talking, saying, could this happen? Matter of fact, we were talking with a large Methodist church in East Memphis about being planted out of them. This church was almost Methodist. What do you think about that? All right? That's right. That's okay. So we talked through that and realized that wasn't going to be the right plan. And then I also realized that it just wasn't the right time for me. And so as we talked through it and prayed, he decided to go ahead and plant the church. We wrote down all the details to it, the vision to it, coming up with the name of it. The idea behind this church was that it was turning rebels into worshipers. That was the original idea behind Christ City Church. There would be a church here in the middle of Midtown that would help bring a renaissance of renewal in the city. And so the church started meeting in the Macintosh's home in April of 2010. They started having some soft launch worship services throughout the summer. And then the first official service of Christ City Church was September 26, 2010. And since that time, over the last several years, Christ City has been a place for people of all kinds to be able to come together. People who are de-churched, people who are unchurched, even people who are way too churched, right? Atheists, agnostics, gay, straight, conservative, liberal, everyone has found themselves donning the doors of this church. Through that time, we've had, like, Uncountable iterations of community. Are you with me, right? Those of you who've been around, you know that's a real thing, right? It's a sore subject. We have had countless ways of doing community, and we try them every which way. We have raised up leaders and burned out leaders. We have seen people come and we've seen people, we've seen people go. But the church has sustained throughout it all because she goes through a lot. But then something about seven months ago happened. That brought this church to its knees. And without even going into any detail, that's not the time or place here, about as for what happened, um, I'm sure you can find somebody on the side and they can give you a story at some point in time. But there was just this question that I think so many people had that were here at this church, and that is, will this church exist in six months? Will this church exist in 12 months? Like, will this church be able to make it through this circumstance? This church was brought to its knees. And after the dust started settling around May, I started reflecting over just everything that was going on, everything that was happening. And I was reminded of just a couple of things in Scripture. 
And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Just a couple of things, a couple of parts of scripture that it started speaking to me around May. It started pushing me to say to our staff and elders, we're going to switch from an anniversary to a birthday. And I just kind of want to lay that out for you. Now, the first part I started thinking through around the middle end of May was a story in, in Matthew 16. It's a story of Jesus and his disciples who were traveling throughout northern Palestine, Israel. And in the far northwest corner of Palestine, there was this city called Caesarea Philippi. It was a city for Caesar, Caesar's city. It was the, in a sense, the capital, Rome's capital of Palestine. And um, Jewish people were scared to death of this area, of this city. It was super, super pagan. There were like no Yahweh as God-fearing people living there. A plurality of culture. And so Jewish people stayed away from there, of course, except for Jesus. He seems to always be willing to go into places that no one else wants to go. Now, one of the mystiques of this city, a mythology, almost an urban legend that made it so scary, was that underneath the city, there were these canals. These waters that would come out from the city, always flowing. And there's this one cave that all the waters would come out of. It never stopped. And the belief that was passed down over centuries in this area was that the Greek god Pan lived underneath the city. That Pan was this Greek god who played a flute. He had um, uh, an animal legs and hoofs, but a human upper body. He had horns. Matter of fact, it's the picture and depiction that the church has kind of drawn of the devil since. This was the original kind of concept of, of the devil. And that Pan's Labyrinth, for Guillermo uh, uh, Toro fans, you'll know this, like Pan's Cave, I got one person who's watched it, good. So Pan's Labyrinth, Pan's Cave, was this area that everybody was spooked out of. Matter of fact, there were stories passed down that people who went into this cave never returned. It was hell. It was their Hades. They literally called it the gates of hell. Now this is really important because Jesus takes his followers to this area. And you can only imagine he takes them to this cave. And then he starts this discussion with them. He says, who are people saying that I am? Like who do people say that I am? And so then his followers, his disciples started saying, well, there's a few different scenarios out there. One could be that maybe you're John the Baptist, but like you just cleaned yourself up really well because John the Baptist is really nasty and we don't know. Maybe you're Jeremiah. Maybe you're a reincarnation of other prophets. We don't really know, but that's what they're saying. And then Jesus turns the, the question on them. He says, well, who do you say that I am? Like, and that's a really big question, right? Like when you ask people who are with you in life what they think about you, you're putting yourself in a really vulnerable position. You're going to find out that they really want to be with you or not. Are you with me on that? So Jesus then says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, at the time, his name was Simon. He voices up and says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Now, that's a loaded political concept. You are the one to bring reform and political change in this country to drive out the Romans and this city being its capital, you're the one. 
And so then Jesus looks at him and he goes, Simon, you're on to something. In verses 17, he goes, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you this, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, a couple of things we need to recognize. Jesus calls Simon a new name. He calls him Peter, or Petros, which in the Greek, it means like Little Rock. Like, not like in Arkansas, but like Little Rock, right? A rock that's bigger than a pebble, it's more like a big stone. And he goes, your name will no longer be Simon, but your name will be Little Rock. It will be Peter. Now, this is important. Let me just pause for a second and recognize something. How many of you knew that Jesus was a carpenter's son? Right? That's right. And so, Jesus was a carpenter's son, and he grew up in northern Israel, northern Palestine. And if you, whatever, whatever your father did, if you were the son, you picked up that trade. So that means Jesus was also a carpenter. Are you with me? So, but here's the thing. The word carpenter in Greek isn't the word that you would use for one building with wood only. It could mean that. The literal meaning of carpenter in Greek is a craftsman or a builder. And you would always use the materials in your area. Now, in northern Palestine, where Jesus grew up and where they were in Caesarea Philippi, there was hardly any wood around. What they used was stone. So, more than likely, Jesus wasn't using wood. Jesus was building and carving with stone. That he was almost like a stonemason, a stone builder. So, I want you to keep this in mind. Because he says to Peter, Peter, you are now a stone. You are a stone that's being shaped and crafted in such a way that it has so much importance beyond what you understand. And then he says to him, and on this rock, now just so you know in the Greek, this rock is a different Greek word than the word he gave for Peter. He says, Peter, you are a little rock. And then he goes, on this rock, meaning a large cliff, I will build my church. Here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter, you're not the foundation of the church. I'm the foundation of the church. Peter, you're not the one that's going to start the church. Peter, I'm the one that starts the church. But Peter, I use you to build the church. Now, this is important for us to keep in mind. Because there are certain understandings of the world that Peter was the founding rock of the church. That's not what Jesus was saying. Because if you start with a man, it must end with a man. If you start with a man, it has to only go as far as the man's character and capabilities can take it. But if you start with Jesus, the one who truly is the rock, and then you let other little rocks be built, stone shaped into a church, now you have something to work with. Now you have something to work with. Now you actually can go somewhere and celebrate the fact that your life was started by you. It was actually started by something greater than you. That's worth an amen. That's... That means Christ City Church actually was started by a person or persons. Christ City Church was started by Jesus. And people were used as stones to build this church along the way. And the good news is this. The gates of Hades where Pan resides 
His layer will never prevail against you. And this is what kept going through my mind just a few months ago. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Why? Because this is God's church. And friends, this gives us a confidence that no matter what we're going through, as a church, we can have confidence knowing we're simply the stones being used to build up this place for people to come meet God. But we are not the source. We simply are being used as part of the process. Are you with me on that? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thought I had was that, that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church because he is the big rock and we are the little rocks being shaped into something more. Then I was reminded of this line that John uses, born of God. You know, John was also a follower of Jesus and he um, had his own writing style. He's not considered a quote-unquote synoptic gospels like Mark and Luke and Matthew. He kind of goes his own direction. And if you read John long enough, whether it's the Gospel of John or his three epistles or whether the book of Revelation, you find there's a cadence and a tempo because John is writing at a later stage in life. All of John's writings of those books were written after 80 AD, sometime between 80 and 95 AD. John was basically the last living disciple of all the disciples. And the world had changed since when the other gospels were written. And John was this pastor living in this Greco-Roman world in modern day Turkey. And he's writing to churches, trying to encourage them. It's important because he's using this idea and language of that you are birthed of God. Matter of fact, if you read John chapter three, a very famous passage, you know that there's this guy named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and is like, how do I get with you? And Jesus is like, unless you are born again, like unless you're born of something more than your own self, you'll never be able to fully get this. But if you let yourself be born of something more, something that's just beyond you, then you can actually find yourself entering into this kingdom. And of course, Nicodemus, just as weird as it sounds today, Nicodemus is like, how do I get back into my mother's womb? And, and Jesus like face plants, you know, and it's like, we got a ways to go. Just hang out with me for a while. You'll get it at some point in time. So John is using this idea, though, of, of being born, born of God. Throughout 1 John, this is the phrase he uses time and time and time again. And he's writing to a people here, this is very important. He's writing to a people who were questioning, will they exist in six months for a year? Now listen to me here, because this is where it meets us. The landscape of the world at this time was that of unimaginable evil. Uh, there was a young 16-year-old Caesar who came into power, emperor came into power, whose name was Nero at 54 AD. And Nero, like any 16-year-old who's given the keys of an empire, is going to run amok, right? You know how that goes, right? None of you at 16 were making good decisions, all right? Council, happy birthday. I hope you make better decisions. All right, so, but we're not giving you an empire to run. Thank goodness. All right, so, um, but like, he was 16, he became emperor of the known world. And what he found that he really had a problem with were all these Christians. Nero used to gather Christians at parties. He would tie them up, put them on poles and trees, douse them with lighter fluid, and then set them on fire. 
And then he would have soirees and people walk around as people were screaming, dying. This was for him like a fun party. He started lighting Christians on fire. And then he started lighting the city on fire. Because in 6970 AD, he actually um, started fires throughout Rome and started blaming Christians. And then, proverbially, in a sense, metaphorically, Christians felt like their whole existence was lit on fire. That how were they going to exist? They were dying. And John writes to them, and he's saying, you need to know something. That these evil forces at the end of the day don't win. That in the day, God wins. Because you were born of something more than just flesh. He says it in verse 4 of 1 John 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Eugene Peterson in the message, I love how he puts it. He goes, every God-begotten person conquers the world's ways. The conquering power that brings the world to its knees is our faith. Now, we need to kind of unpack this, though, what he's trying to say to us. First, let's just talk about the word world. Now, the, the word world in Greek is the word cosmos, all right? Everybody say cosmos, all right? It's the word we get for cosmos. It means like, like space and thereafter. That's how we use it. It's used for the things that are just so huge in life that are beyond our understanding. Now, the word cosmos, though, in the New Testament was actually used, though, as, in a sense, representing spiritual forces. Paul talks through this throughout his letters, and so does John, that the world, the ways of the world, when it talks about that, are these evil forces of the cosmos who are after you. Now, that can sound weird because you're going, nobody's after me. Like, I'm fine. I'm an American. Like, I have my own house, and nobody's coming in unless I let them in. But the reality is this, for an ancient Near Eastern person, their view of life was much different. That there were spiritual forces actually at work in the world trying to destroy you, whether you realize it or not. So this idea of the cosmos was super important. Here's what John's saying. There are evil forces trying to bring you down. There is real hatred in this world against you. That there's an enemy, Pan. The accuser, Satan, whatever you want to call it, who is after you and wants to bring you to your knees in submission to a way that this world operates. Where you throw up your hands and say, I guess this is as good as it gets. I guess at the end of the day, my life is just meant to mean nothing. And I guess all that's in it for me is just loads of brokenness and therefore there is no God. That was the understanding that John had who tried to communicate to this church. Now, there's also another word here that's really interesting because he's saying that we will overcome the cosmos. And this word overcome, I'll put it up here. Anybody want to take a guess? I know you don't know Greek. Anybody want to take a guess what the word for overcome means? Nike. <laughs> Nike, right? There you go. So we found, like, the beast, Nike, all right? Like, they're modern-day Rome. They're here to conquer. I still love them, though. I love Nike. All right, so, matter of fact, I have a picture for you. You're going to find out where the swoop came from. We can put this up. The goddess Nike. Anybody, can anybody know this? 
All right, so there you go. You knew it, of course, so Roland knew it, okay. So, but here you go, there's your swoosh sign. You didn't know it now. You're worshiping a pagan god whenever you wear Nikes, okay. So, so here's the idea though, is that this goddess Nike was the one who would travel throughout the battlefields and give victory to the Romans. That's what they believed. And what's so interesting is that John is reframing it all. He's saying, actually, the world with this evil will not overcome you, but you will overcome the world. Now, this is where, though, we have to pause for a second and ask the question, what does he mean by overcoming? Because if what he means by overcoming is the ways of the world, then don't we just end up in the same mess? Like, just bear with me. I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement. But if you try to take down another superpower by being a greater superpower, don't you just continue the process of someone having to always be a superpower? Like if you have to always use force to bring down another person, don't you just continue the process of violence. That kind of seems to be the way of the world. Matter of fact, there's a book in the Bible for you to read sometime, the book of Judges. It's meant to be a satirical piece. The book of Judges is trying to point out how worthless and futile war is. That no matter how many times you fight a person to bring them to their knees in submission, they will always rise up and come back to get you in retaliation. Now, here's what, here's what John's doing, though. Because you have to look at it in the context of what he's saying to overcome. Notice back in verse 19 of chapter 4, he's saying to them, we were first loved by God. And then he goes into a whole thing. How can you not love the person beside you if you say you love God, who you have not seen, but you see the person beside you. See, that the ethos of the church was meant to be love, that we interact with one another through a gracious, caring, and giving way, that we take a lower seat to raise the other person up. And if you can't do that with the person beside you, then that means you don't love God. You can't say you love God and hate a person who sits across the aisle from you. It's impossible. And then he goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 1, that we are all born of God, meaning you're born from this position of love. You're a love child of God. Whether you want to look at it like that or not, you're God's love child. How about that? But you're not illegitimate. Okay, so, but you're a love child of God. And he's saying to you, like, if you're born of love, then you'll love. And if you don't love, that means you're not born of love and you don't get it. If you have a problem with certain people in this sanctuary and you're not willing to talk with them about it, then that means you don't get God. That at the end of the day, we have to be willing to walk across the aisle and say, I don't always understand you, but I know that I'm meant to love you. And the way you love a person is by getting to know their story, listening to them, watching them, interacting with them. And John is saying, this is the foundation of the church is love. And then he goes on, in verse 6 and 7 to talk about that Jesus who came through water and blood. Now that imagery is important because by him saying he who came through water and blood, he's actually conjuring up a Roman image and that is a cross. Now bear with me here for a second. Jesus takes an ancient device of hatred and turns it into a device of love. Jesus, you see, crosses in the ancient world by the Romans were meant to bring people to their knees. 
cities, towns, families. If you don't believe that we're not powerful than you, if you don't believe that we can't conquer you, then we'll crucify you. They were known for crucifying up to 1,000 or 2,000 people at a time. And they would space them out by about 20 yards apiece going into cities. So if a city tried to rebel against Rome, they would take hundreds and thousands of people from that city, line them up going into the city and crucify them so that any person walking into the city would know this. You better bow a knee. You better go to your knees before Rome. And what does Jesus do? He takes an ancient device of hatred and turns everything on its head. He takes something that was meant to tell you to bring it to your knees out of fear and instead bring it to your knees out of love. If you get that, you get Christianity. See, our problem is we try to fight hatred with hatred, evil force with evil force. See, evil forces are against you, they're against me, and they're against this church. But the ethos and the ethic of Jesus is not to retaliate by an equal force of evilness. When you see the injustices in the world, for example, you see the racism, you see the hate, you don't get back at it by forcing it away. You get back at it by loving it to its knees. Martin Luther King in your bulletins said it best. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Now what is John saying and what am I trying to say? Because you were birthed by God, because you are His, no matter what you go through in life, you can overcome no matter what you go through in this world, you can overcome. No matter how beat down you are by life, you can overcome. No matter how much darkness and brokenness you experience in your own life, you can overcome. And no matter how many of the evil systems you find yourself bumping into, if you're a person of color, if you're someone who's been beat down by racism, by being profiled, here's what John is saying, you can overcome. If you're someone who's coming out of a broken relationship, you're divorced and you've been rejected by the church, you can overcome. If you're a person who has a sketchy past and you don't belong at any table being the cool kids, you can overcome. This is good. You're not telling me that yet, though. You can overcome. This is the story of Christianity. But we don't overcome by trying to bring submission. We overcome by bringing love. I remember after the first sermon in this past sermon series on the Beatitudes, um, I used an example of Moana, all right? Moana. Um, if you don't know Moana, if you don't know Moana, that's a shame, but it's not too late. It's on Netflix. There's always more room on the Moana bandwagon. And I would say that this is the best Disney princess movie. Heck, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen, all right? I love Moana. It is what it is. So... Matter of fact, Charlotte's so sick of it, I try to talk her into watching it at least two times a week, and she's like, no, I'm done. I'm, no, she speaks full sentences when it comes to Moana. Um, but there's, there's a, I remember talking about it afterwards with, um, uh, it was Rachel Alston, 
and Adam Peterson. I don't know if Adam's here or not. I remember talking about it with them, and they started talking about a perspective going that what was so beautiful about the film to them was how Milana used uh, nonviolent ways to bring change into the quote-unquote villain's life. And honestly, I hadn't seen that. So I had to go home and watch it again. I was like, oh my God, this is so incredible. <laughs> this is so amazing. Matter of fact, I have a picture here of Taka and Tafiti. It's really interesting. I'm just going to show you the big reveal. You see, Taka is the, the one on the, on, on the top. Taka is the demon goddess who um, is destroying the oceans and the islands. But here's the irony of it all. Um, Milana realizes something. Taka is actually not necessarily just trying to be evil for evil. Taka's lost something. It's lost its heart, the gem of her heart. And by Moana being willing to not resist Taka with more fighting, but instead surrendering, saying, here I am, and come get your heart back, Taka then becomes Tafiti, the beautiful island. See, here's the thing that Christians do. Christians look at the world and sees all the evil happening, and it says, come get your heart back. You don't have to go without a heart anymore. And you don't have to go without a God anymore who doesn't want to be with you. Come get it back. And then when they start coming near and asking questions, is this real or true? They start looking around and going, well, you guys are acting in a way that's really loving and different than out here. And then they start going, maybe I want that. Maybe there's room for me. You see, the vision of Christ City, yes, for so long, it has been a place for rebels and co-worshippers. But listen, friends, Christ City is even more. It's a place to belong. It's a place to know God. It's a place where we hold out our hands with people's hearts and go, come get your heart back. Come get the thing you're dying for out there. Come get the thing that you're running from thing to thing and can't find. Come get it right here. And we're going to live in such a way that we're going to take these ancient torture devices that don't bring us to our knees out of submission, but bring us to our knees out of surrender, saying, there's a God who first showed love to me, and now I can love the world. Do you want to know why Christ City exists? It's because of love. Christ City exists because there's a God who says to this church, I love you, I want you, and I'm not done with you. I have more for you. So here's what I want to do. I want us to go to a time of prayer. I want us to kind of settle ourselves here. I want you to think about this. How hard have you been trying to resist the world through equal force that it gives you instead of actually living a life of love? I know that sounds so vague. I don't want that to sound so Christian-y. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an example of love. We're going to take communion. And here's what communion is. Communion is the original expression of love from God. Because communion recognizes something, that there's a God who wants to be with you. So every time we take this body, and we break that bread off the bread, we take those little pieces, little stones off the big stone, we start recognizing something. We're a part of something greater than just our own lives and our own selves. We start breaking that bread off and we dip it into blood. We're reminded of something. 
that here's a God who said, I'm going to take the ways of the world and I'm going to invert them to bring you thankfully to your knees. We're going to take that together. And we're going to look at each other's eyes and realize something. We're brothers and sisters. And we're here because God birthed this church. We are born of God, friends. And we're going to continue because this is God's plan for us. We're going to keep walking together because this is God's plans for us. The question is this. When we walk out of here, will we be a church of love that brings more light than darkness and more love than hatred? Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful right now. And I'm filled with awe at this moment, not because of anything special that's happening in the sense of through the preaching, through the worship. It's just something about being here together and realizing something. That we were brought to our knees through the beauty of you, Jesus, and your willingness to invert the ways of the world, the ways of the cosmos, the evils of this world, and to bring hope and change and love and grace. Now, we will know that none of us got here today because we made a good decision. It's simply because somehow, some way, we just rode the wave of love. Whether we realize it or not, you brought us here. Now, the story of Christ City Church is, yes, there were men and women, there were people, there were families used to build up this church. But Jesus, you're the foundation. You were always the starter. And so we recognize that this morning. We give you praise. And that tells us now that if you started this church, then you'll bring this church to its completion, whatever that may look like. And until then, we want to be a people who live in love, who love one another, and love the world in ways that are so counterintuitive. They just go, maybe I can get my heart back if I go spend time with those people. And they would find that there is a place to belong and a place to find to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.